This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Monday the 29th of March 2021. Can you remember what we were doing a year ago, Tegan? I'm assuming it involved some kind of lockdown. It was, it's all a blur, really. Yeah, it was. It was just more of a. It was more of a process that went on, and it became more and more restrictive, more and more of a lockdown, and it just progressively amped up with JobKeeper coming in, external borders closing, so that uh, non-residents couldn't come back, and you had to apply for exemption to get out, and really it was amping up, and we're settling in for what was going to be for many people a very tough couple of months. Yeah, it was a real sort of starting point too. We didn't know then just how long the lockdown sort of roller coaster was going to go for. But it's interesting because in recent months, those lockdowns have started to lift and we've kind of gone back to normal. But we're now in this situation here in Brisbane where I live, where we've got some cases of COVID-19, the so-called highly infectious UK variant B117. And the last time that happened in January the, the city was put into a snap three-day lockdown, whereas this time we've got cases that have popped up seemingly in the community without the origin really being known. And there just doesn't seem to be the same uh, urgency in terms of jumping on it with a full lockdown. Well, I think what's going on, and again, we've got no particular inside knowledge, but I think they're just more confident in their contact tracing. They're a bit battle-hardened in the way, not anything like New South Wales or Victoria, but I think the government is more confident in the contact tracing and being able to tie this down. And the fact that they got the last one pinned down very quickly and it didn't turn out to be as bad as they thought, then I think that this one they could be a, a bit more well, publicly relaxed about. They're not relaxed about it. And they do actually know where it came from. The, it, ca- it comes from the Princess Alexandra case. That's the medical registrar who caught it on the wards on night duty. Uh, from somebody from overseas who's, who came in with COVID-19. And they knew that the virus that the man from is it Strathpine or Stafford the, the, who caught it, um, who turned up last week, he had the same virus. So, so it was the same genome. And what they couldn't work out is where it actually, how he caught it from, caught it. Just on yesterday's information, again, we're just going on what's publicly available His brother seems to have been positive for COVID-19 with an older infection. And it may well be that the brother was the intermediary. I think they've still got to find out where the brother caught it from, but the picture is slowly building up. So I think the states are just getting much more confident in how to handle it. Even still, we we don't have a really clear chain of transmission. We know that these people have been out in the community. And again, last time that there was one of these cases in Brisbane, it was it was a big citywide lockdown. They were scared because it was the B117 and they, they just didn't know how fast this was going to take off. Do we think that it's because there's vaccines now available that this might be, like the imperative to lockdown might not be quite as strong as it was because we have other means of protection? Well, you might say that, but I don't think that's the case looking at what they did because Premier Palaszczuk locked down aged care and disability, um, residential disability services. Now, they should have been vaccinated by the Commonwealth by now, you'd have thought, with Pfizer with doses three weeks apart. Clearly, the aged care has not been fully vaccinated or 
even one dose would have partially protected them. So I think there's a problem there that vaccination hasn't rolled out as fast as people thought, particularly in aged care, which is the responsibility of the Commonwealth. Is it too late to start a ring vaccination strategy, which is a strategy that we've talked about on this show before, where you go out and you you vaccinate people in the areas where it's likely that they might have been exposed or they might be exposed? Well, ring vaccination is actually part of the national rollout. If you look at the national rollout, they do have a provision for urgent ring vaccination in there so that they can vaccinate the contacts. Now, what I don't know is whether that's happening in Queensland at the moment, but that could also be a reason for being less likely to go to lockdown because they've got some more strategies at hand. Well, speaking of other strategies, Deb's asking, well, Deb begins by saying, hi, Norman and Tegan, and any little quackers smuggled into Norman's socks. Oh, is that what it was? I was wondering what was (laughs) nibbling away there. Was tickling your feet. Deb is genuinely confused as to why the Queensland government hasn't mandated masks with the latest cases. They're strongly urging people to wear masks at indoor venues, but she's seen hardly anyone doing it. To Deb, mask mandates seem like an easy, cheap way to reduce risk. Am I missing something? Uh, No, you're not missing anything. I would have thought that was one of the things you just could do when you got a cluster, particularly when they thought, wrongly as it turned out, that there was a party of 25 people. But when you thought that, well, and you weren't sure, then mandating masks even for a couple of days, people would respond. Now, I did spend the weekend in Brisbane um, because of the World Science Festival, along with you, Tegan, and the event that I did at the concert hall where there was a lot of people there, they were all wearing masks and that was voluntary. So I saw people wearing masks, but um, fair enough, Deb didn't. Is there more that Brisbane could be doing to help this turn, not turn into a cluster? Well, I think they're doing what the other states are doing, which is contact tracing, trying to go back in time. They're just doing all the stuff that's known to control it. I just think that um, standard contact tracing, when you've not got too much virus around, is what you wanted to do as long as a lot of people are getting tested so you're not missing anything. And testing numbers did seem to go up in Queensland over the last couple of days and that's what you need to make sure you're not missing anything. Well, from Queensland to Victoria and we're getting some clinical advice from the Victorian authorities about the AstraZeneca vaccine and the risk of blood clots. Yes. So what happened over the weekend, I think it was on Friday, the British Society of Haematology issued advice to British doctors. So it's not official government advice, but it's advice from people who know about blood and know about blood clotting and antibodies to platelets and things like that. And whilst not committing to this being cause and effect with the Astra vaccine, they have been able, through the Germans and the other European countries, their their haematology colleagues in other countries, been able to describe a syndrome that may or may not be attached to the, the, the vaccine. And what they've done is advise doctors about the tests they can do and how to recognise it, uh, which is what we've not done. Well, in fact, yesterday, um, or it might even be Saturday, in Victoria, advice was released to Victorian doctors, and I'm not sure whether any other states have done, have done it. And the advice is, is very straightforward. It's that if symptoms start day three or four, particularly headache and blurred vision. There are tests that you can do which um, will tell you whether it's going to be this con- likely to, to be going to become this condition or not, and that you can just advise people not to worry about it. And then there are further tests that one can do. Now, they're not necessarily widely available in, in Australia, but the key thing here we've talked about before is that if you think 
somebody if it's likely somebody's got this condition, whether or not it's linked to the Astra vaccine, there's drugs that you can use and drugs that you should not use to reduce the, the chance of clotting. Because if you give uh, heparin or warfarin, you can make somebody worse. But there are other, other drugs you can use. So it's good. It means that doctors can have tools at hand to recognize it in terms of the history, tests they can do, and hopefully will upskill pathology labs to do more of these tests. Then people can actually go and look for cases. So now we have a case definition. We know when it starts. We know what the symptoms are. We know what the blood tests are. And they can go and look for it more closely in the British data and elsewhere. And if they don't find it, it's far less likely to be cause and effect. We do have a question here from Janelle, one of many people who've written in saying that they're a 40-something-year-old female healthcare worker. So in, in, that, in that instance, they're probably eligible for the Astra vaccine sooner rather than later. Uh, and Janelle says, how do I know that I don't have the rare clotting condition, which may temporarily preclude me from having the Astra vaccine? Should females under 55 be screened for this prior to having the vaccine? Or do we just take our chances and hope and assume that this condition does not apply to us? So I think that what the, uh, I don't have the recommendations in front of me, but I think what they say is there is no screening test. It does not seem that factor 5 laden, which is one of the genetic clotting disorders, is a risk factor. So that does, doesn't seem to be a risk factor. So I don't think at the moment they're in a position to say that you can screen for it. And I think this is going to get sorted out over the next few days. It's unusual. It's rare. It may still not be cause and effect in terms of a tight relationship with the vaccine, but at least doctors have a tool to recognise it and do the right tests. And so some questions from our audience about side effects from vaccines, because of course, apart from this this rare blood clotting thing, we don't know if it's related or not, but we do know that there are side effects that are common to having a vaccine. And Courtney's saying, I had my jab of the AstraZeneca vaccine and had a fever and headaches. Uh, they gather that this is normal. Why do we get these symptoms? Well, for some reason, the Astra vaccine is a little bit more what's called reactogenic than the Pfizer one. It means that you get more symptoms. Essentially, it's just a sign that the immune system's reacting to the vaccine. But it does seem to be a bit more reactive than the Pfizer, cause a few more symptoms when you look at that. And it does seem to, the the reactive symptoms do seem to be a bit greater in women for some reason. And it's probably that women's immune systems do operate differently from men's. And that could be what's going on there. It doesn't mean there's any harm going on, but it just means that you're you're really responsive to the vaccine. And so if... If having a fever is a normal part of the vaccine, Paul's asking, does taking paracetamol after vaccination reduce the efficacy of the vaccination? Should you persevere with the fever rather than take medicine for relief? I don't think there are any fever-reducing medicines that will interfere with the immune system. Um, you know, there are some, like ibuprofen, which will cause a dampening of, of inflammation, but I don't think it's going to affect how the antibody response is generated. So I don't think you need to worry about that too much. Paracetamol would be pretty safe, I would imagine. So you don't need the fever for the vaccine to work? No. Well, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. But of course, as always, you can ask your questions by going to abc.net.au slash coronacast. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then. 